Enjoying these episodes? Give us a shout out on social at Built On Air. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions. So drop us a like and be sure to subscribe to catch new episodes when they release. It helps us keep the podcast going. Hello and welcome to the Built On Air podcast. Built On Air is a regular podcast where we talk with everyday people and learn about the amazing things they are doing with Airtable. Today's podcast is sponsored by OpenSide, the leading solutions provider for Airtable customers. Check out OpenSide.com to learn more about their products and services that can take your Airtable usage to the next level. Use promo code BUILTONAIR to receive $20 towards any product purchase. In this episode, we're joined by Nicole Dyer, a professional genealogist, lecturer, and creator of FamilyLocket.com and the Research Like a Pro Genealogy podcast. Nicole explains the ins and outs of genealogy research and how she's able to help people find out more about themselves and their family's history. But of course, this is no easy task. We get insight into the meticulous research she conducts and how putting together the pieces of the past can quickly result in over a thousand data points. So to ease the data collection process, Nicole uses Airtable to organize her research. We get a rundown of a couple bases she uses to collect the data and even how she begins to draw her conclusions. Nicole tells us all about the collaborative nature of the genealogy field, so it comes as no surprise that she's added templates of her research log bases to the Airtable universe. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Nicole. Um, I have a couple of questions about what it is you do. So I know you do a lot of research with genealogy, and I was hoping you'd be able to give me and our audience a little bit of background about what that means. Sure, no problem. So genealogy is just the study of your family history and finding your parents and grandparents and your ancestors. It's kind of like a mixture of historical research and learning about your family at the same time, kind of micro history, focus in really close on one place in time and try to figure out what your family was doing there and who their parents were. Mm -hmm. So is that, would you consider yourself a little bit almost like a a time-based private detective. That's a great way to say it. I love that, Camille. <laughs> you know, I love, I think that's the reason why I love genealogy is because it is kind of investigative and mm-hmm. you do feel like you're uncovering mysteries. Um, I studied history in my undergraduate degree and I really liked that aspect of history where you're researching and coming up with a new angle on something that already has maybe been written about, but it's kind of a new way of looking at it. And the uh, the fun part about genealogy is that a lot of the discoveries about your own family and other people's families haven't been made yet. So I get to do a lot of discovery when I research from, for clients or for friends or whatnot. Sure. Um, you know, as we all know, history is there's so many different perspectives of, you know, major historical events, but, um, you know, minor events or just even personal events have such a long lasting effect on a family and then their extended network. So in your research, I'm sure it provides a a great amount of, you know, interest and in some ways closure for the people you do the research for. For sure. A, A lot of people have unresolved questions, especially people who don't know a lot about their past or maybe were adopted. And some of the things I'll talk about later are tools that I use to help people who are using DNA to solve family mysteries. Maybe they don't know who their great grandfather was or even their own parents. So they take a DNA test and then they use genealogy paired with the DNA evidence to 
come to a conclusion about who the biological family is. And often that can be painful, can be emotional, it can be wonderful. There's so many outcomes, but most people just want to know just for so many reasons, but they just have this desire to know, you know, their family history for medical reasons. They would just want to know where they came from, their makeup, biogeographical makeup, all those different things that people wonder about and want to know. And if you're not given that from your parents and you're not told, people have a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, And when it comes to just kind of everyone's individual story, you know, for instance, my, my mom is from Los Angeles. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, but my dad is from Kansas City and he's the only one from his family that lives in California. So there's a bunch of family whose history I don't really know because I just don't see them as often as I see my other um, other half of my family. So the work you do is, you know, even with living relatives, it, it's, it's helpful, I would imagine, in giving, enhancing a connection you might feel with your extended family. Yeah, that's really true. There's a lot of connection that happens when we do our research about our ancestors and find these cousins that we didn't know before. Mm-hmm. A lot of the, the DNA research that I do puts me in touch with all kinds of cousins I never knew before because we share some little parts of our DNA. And so we're put as matches in each other's DNA results. So how, how does that work? If, if you have a, uh, someone who's come to you and they want to have some research done on their, their family origin, um, obviously they can provide DNA samples, but how is it that you're able to connect it with DNA samples of people who are long since gone or, you know, what, what is that process like? Great question. So each of us carries the DNA inside of us from our parents. So we get 50% from Mm -hmm. each parent and then we get a portion of our DNA from our grandparents. It's not an even 25% from each grandparent, but it's a range of about 15 to 30 or 45% from each grandparent. And it's kind of a random recombination with each generation. Mm -hmm. So you could inherit like 40% from your grandparent and then 15% from your great grandparent. And, and so inside of your genes and your DNA, you have these little pieces that are from all your different ancestors. And then once you get back five or six generations, you start losing some ancestors DNA because you can't inherit everything, right? You only get half from each generation. So um, there's other people who've taken DNA tests and they're all put into the same database. So if you test at 23andMe and you opt into the family matching, then they run your DNA results against the results of everyone else who's opted in. And they say, oh, you two have the same segment on chromosome two and five. And it looks like you share enough DNA to be second cousins. So then you probably share the same great grandparent. And then you have to look at your, you know, where you're from and who your parents' names are, and you look at kind of the paper records, and you match up the paper records with what the DNA is showing, and you try to find a common ancestor. Mm-hmm. So the DNA results don't tell you who it is. You have to kind of figure it out. So that's where you, the detective, comes in. Right. <laughs> so um, when, you, when you're doing that kind of research, um, obviously, like you just said, the amount that you inherit or the percentage that you inherit from one grandparent versus another grandparent varies. And so I would imagine it's somewhat difficult, I would say probably very difficult to to come up with enough evidence, if you will, to say, I'm pretty sure that these two people are cousins, for instance. So 
obviously that comes with, you know, practice and skill over time and, you know, training in order to make those conclusions. But how, how long do you think it took you to be more comfortable with um, coming to those conclusions? You know, when I first started looking at DNA test results, I didn't really know what I was looking at. I would try to type in an ancestor's surname into the list because I have like 90,000 matches. Mm-hmm. And so I would type in certain names that I was looking for and I would find some people, but I wasn't sure if we had the same ancestor and I didn't really know, but taking a lot of classes and practicing and learning from a lot of the, um, the books and the sources out there and mostly just practice was really how I figured out what works. And there's a lot of experts, you know, CC Moore, if you've heard of her, she's one of the investigative genetic genealogists who's been working on solving crimes and she's done a lot of teaching. So I went to her, some of her lectures and, and she has a Facebook group. And then there's um, a citizen scientist named Blaine Bettinger, who's got a Facebook group. And it's kind of this community of genetic genealogists where we go to these classes together and lectures and talk together on Facebook. And we've kind of built up the science behind it you know, through this um, citizen science, everyone trying it out and working on it and figuring out what works the best. And it's still, it's still such an emerging field that uh, we don't really know what some things mean. And it kind of um, goes hand in hand with population genetics. And so um, there's just a lot of considerations, but autosomal DNA, which is the DNA we inherit from both of our parents and from our grandparents that I've been talking about, it, um, we're pretty sure now that we can figure out cases for people um, who are looking for um, unknown parents or grandparents within about four or five generations, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's three generations or four, it's like pretty sure we can figure it out. But getting back, the further you get back, there's the higher chance that you didn't inherit DNA from that ancestor. So it gets trickier. And sure. but usually we can get around that by just having more family members take DNA tests. So we'll say to our first cousin, Hey, can you take a test? And we try to get more people on the larger group that we have descended from that ancestor who we don't know their parents, the more likely it is that we can figure it out. So that covers the more um, biological component of the research that you would do, but there's also the paper record component. How do you go about um, collecting all of this, you know, written information? I mean, from generations past, it's not like um, we do nowadays where everything has tags and, you know, is digital and easy to read. You have to deal with handwriting and paper records deteriorate um, based on surrounding conditions. What is, what's that process like? You know, in the last 10 years, it's been amazing how many records have been digitized and put online. And some of the people that are really at the forefront of that are Family Search and Ancestry and um, a lot of state archives and, and countries who have archives are doing the same because they want to preserve their records. And so it's making it a lot easier for people like me to go online and research without having to go to the courthouse or go to the archive or go to the historical society in person. Although often we do need to get those records eventually. So sometimes it takes just calling or emailing an archivist and asking them to do a lookup or hiring a researcher that lives out in Georgia or wherever I need records. But typically I start by doing um, research with all the records that are online. So a big one for genealogists is the census records that were taken every 10 years in the US starting in 1790. So those are a really big clue that we can use. And it's kind of fun because this year was a census year. So we all 
are kind of filling out our senses yeah. in 2020. <laughs> um, yes, as a, as a side plug, I don't know when this episode will go up, but do your census. <laughs> I'm an urban planner and we rely on that data a lot. <laughs> Please do your census. That's great. Yeah, I love the census. It's amazing, especially starting in 1850 when the household included all the household members, uh, you know, mostly, except for, you know, it didn't include everyone. But before that, it only included the head of household. And so it was really Mm -hmm. not that, not as wonderful. But starting in 1850, it was better. And then once we get to 1870 forward, it really included every person. Hmm. So um, you have your own podcast um, where you talk about genealogy and the work that you do. And you had mentioned earlier that this larger network of people who do similar work and, you know, help advance the field forward. Do you want to talk about how you started your podcast? What inspired you to share what you do, you know, with the greater populace? Sure, that'd be fun. So my mom and I are professional genealogists, and we started doing research together on our own family when I was a teenager. And so I thought about studying family history when I was in college. I actually went to the only college that offers a bachelor's degree in family history, but I decided not to do it, which I kick myself about now. It's kind of funny. I know, right? I studied history teaching instead, which I loved. And I taught middle school for a while. Mm -hmm. But um, I got back into researching genealogy and my mom and I were kind of, you know, teaching little classes in our communities, helping others, because it's just kind of a fun thing to do together with other people. And we decided to start a blog together. And after a while, we would talk on the phone for hours about it because she was studying to do her accreditation in genealogy and kind of get that, you know, stamp of approval from an accrediting body that she was at the professional level. So I was picking her brain all the time because I want to do it too. And we were talking on the phone and I love listening to podcasts. And I finally said to my mom, we should record these conversations that we're having because I'm sure other people would want to know what you're telling me too. (laughs) So we just started one. And I had always listened to Pat Flynn's podcast, Smart Passive Income, just as kind of a fun thing because I'm interested in entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of just followed his guide for how to start a podcast and we just got up and running. So we're almost to episode 100 now, which is crazy. Congratulations. It's been been really fun. I love it because I get to talk to my mom. Oh, it's great that you do the work that you and your mother do helps people make or enhance their connections with their family. And it's almost like a family business, what you guys do. I think that's adorable. (laughs) It's very family focused. (laughs) All right. Well, um, with all of this data that you're collecting, um, you've made a base that helps you in your research. Do you want to show that with us? Yeah, I can't wait. Great. Okay. So this is what I'm most excited about. It's a DNA research log. I was using a regular spreadsheet to keep track of all the DNA matches that I was working with on a particular case. And the list of matches got quite lengthy. And so I was a little bit frustrated because I was entering a lot of information about the match. And then I was having to enter some information about the emails that I sent to them. And then also entering information about the searches that I was doing for them. And I was doing this all in a very, um, basic spreadsheet with multiple tabs. And I felt like I was duplicating my data entry Mm -hmm. because I was kind of adding the information about the match and their name and stuff to each table. So when I learned, when I kind of had the idea that I could use Airtable, it was really kind of this like nebulous idea. I wonder if that would work. And then when I 
actually started using it, it was such a relief to just be able to enter the DNA match information once and then use the linked field to be able to see the match information and just expand the field when I needed to see like how many centimorgans of DNA do we share? Oh yeah, 35. And mm -hmm. where is this match located? Oh yeah, I can click their family tree right here. So that was really great. Um, but yeah, it's, it was interesting because I was using Airtable in a volunteer position that I was doing for um, a genealogy institute that provides week-long courses for genealogists who want to learn how to do research better and they want to learn from the experts. And so as a volunteer publicity assistant for that group, we were collecting a lot of information for publicity and keeping track of a lot of things. And so I had used Airtable in that capacity and had seen kind of the, the basic way that it works. And I didn't really know anything about it. I just got thrown into this position and the, the person training me was like, here's what you do. You just use this and here's what it is. And I was like, oh, this is like a whole new world. I'm not, I'm not familiar with database you know, usage really at all, except for when I go to ancestry.com and I type in a search request for a database. So, so it was exciting to be able to see the potential and then to make it work for me and to make, to simplify kind of the data entry that I was doing. Makes sense to me. Um, so you have kind of, it, it's structured with at one table to look at your interactions with the people that you're researching. So do you mind um, switching over to that table? Sure, so here's the correspondence log and a lot of what I do involves contacting the DNA match and saying, looks like we're a match. Um, we look, it looks like we're about third cousins and I need to know a little bit more about your ancestry so that we can find a common ancestor. So then they have to reply and then I need to keep track of people that I've already messaged because I can send like a hundred messages in one day and I just kind mm -hmm. of, is there, like I said, there's thousands of DNA matches and trying to figure out how they're all related can take a while if we don't have some more information. So usually I'll just ask, you know, if they don't have a family tree linked to their account, then I'll ask them for the names of their grandparents and then I can trace their tree back from there. So mm -hmm. I need to keep track because if I send them multiple messages and they've already responded, I think that's kind of rude, you know, like, mm -hmm. oh, sorry, <laughs> like I already contacted you. So I need to have like some record of that in their response and then where we contacted each other. So. I'll put, you know, this is um, the type of contact in this field. I've customized it so I can choose what, you know, email or Facebook or the message system within the testing company, or maybe it was a phone call or a letter. Usually it's just within Ancestry message system. Mm -hmm. So this is just kind of something that I was doing in a spreadsheet that wasn't that efficient. Now I love it because I can group all of my correspondence by which DNA match I was talking to. And I can see specifically that I've sent two messages to this person and what they said back and um, just keep track of all that. Yeah. And um, part of the issue with any kind of, um, you know, task that requires you to contact people and you might contact them over multiple different 
websites or, or sources, whether it be email or through private messaging, you know, sometimes it's hard to keep track of the entire conversation if you have to switch back and forth between, in your case, Ancestry to your email to 23andMe. So I, I can see how this would be a, you know, a lifesaver in keeping a record of everything that has been said in one place. Right. Yeah. And if I wanted to go see all my messages and just Ancestry, I could do that. But it's like, like you said, there's um, multiple databases. So in order to find all the relevant information for a case, we need to transfer the raw DNA results to the other companies and find matches there too. Mm -hmm. so that's usually the best strategy. And then the other thing that we do, so the other thing that I need to do after I get some information back from the DNA match is extend their family tree. So I'm often doing research for them. And this is a really short example, but I'll show you a longer one. But I had to search for a certain person that's associated with one of the matches. So I can say it's match number two. And I've privatized their names because um, just for privacy purposes. So usually mm -hmm. this will be a name and not a number. And so I'll put in, I'm searching for the parents of this certain match and this is where I searched it. And so this is what a, a typical genealogy research log will look like. You have the date, the website you're searching, the URL, and then the source citation, which I haven't fully built for this one, and the results of what I found. So here's another example of a research log and you can kind of see, let's see if I make these rows a little shorter. You can see that, like for um, some of the matches that I have here, um, I'm just doing more than one search and I kind of need to see, I've done five searches on this match and I was able to find his ancestors were so-and-so and just kind of see at a glance what I've done. It's kind of like a mini research log for each of the DNA matches and I mm -hmm. can see it all within one table. So it's really useful for organizing a lot of data, which with these DNA research projects, it really introduces a lot more data than just a regular genealogy research project. So I have a lot more to organize and to kind of keep track of. And if I don't keep track of it, I'm probably going to do it again and waste my time. Yeah. So I've got to keep track of it. So you can kind of see how I've organized it by the name of the DNA match or the number here. Sure. Do you use um, these bases to sort of build your own family tree, if you will, of, of these people and their families? Um, there's like a couple blocks um, Airtable has that... Um, I think it's called like an organization chart. I think is yeah. one of the names where yeah, you, I saw I, that. Um, have you tried using um, that in conjunction with the research you're doing to kind of, once you've figured out who's who in the family, just kind of putting it visually? Yeah, I was really excited to see that there was an org chart that kind of looked like a family tree um, block. And so I tried that out and I put in some names and just tried to play with it a bit. It didn't quite work exactly the way I mean, it works. You could do it, but it just didn't do exactly what I would want. So it was mm -hmm. a little bit, it was kind of fun, but then I think practically I would rather build my tree with one of the tools that was meant for building trees and that has sure. record hint capabilities and the ability to really add in more data and events and things. Ooh, we have a guest. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense to use a, a tool that is specifically built for, um, uh, finalizing you know the family tree um but would you say you know the first part of your research which would include this this um air table 
um, gets you to the point where you can build that tree um, quicker or more efficiently or more accurately? Definitely. I mean, that's the point is to keep all the records organized so that I can build the tree and make the connections that I need to make. Yeah, it really helps. So I wanted to show you also in my matches table, mm -hmm. kind of how I've got it organized. Sometimes I'll put multiple test takers here. And so sometimes I'll need to group by the person who's taken the test because I'll have data from multiple people. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they have the same matches. So it's nice to be able to group by the tester and see, okay, here's all the matches that I've found for RGD. And then mostly I've worked with his data on this case, but then I also have some from his brother down here at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And then I've also done some work on the matches of another cousin. So it can be useful to put everything there, but then be able to separate it out too. Right. And so I'm already seeing that there's a great many number of records that you would have to keep track of. Um, <laughs> in order no. to, to do your work. <laughs> Not every case is this in-depth. This is actually a really difficult one that I haven't solved yet. That's in my own family, so I'm constantly kind of building it. Mm. So we're trying to figure out the parents of my husband's third great-grandfather. Okay. And we think that he was, well, we have heard that he was an orphan. So we don't know if his parents just died really young or what happened if he was given up for adoption. But we haven't found any research that shows who his parents were. So we're using DNA to solve it. And it's kind of leading us to this certain genetic cluster of people that we've been able to isolate. Mm -hmm. And so now it's just kind of up to building the tree, looking at all the evidence and seeing what we can find. Sure. So I've really been relying on my Airtable base to keep track of everything I look at. So do you usually separate, let's say you have one base per case you're working on? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like mm -hmm. to do that. And that's how I was trained. Um, as a genealogist, was to have one research log spreadsheet for every objective or project that I was doing. And um, so some people like to keep a research log for their, like their whole family, like maybe their grandparents, and they'll have a research log with everything about their grandparents. But that's not kind of how I do it. I just um, do it based on my research question, like who were the parents of so-and-so, mm -hmm. or who, what was the identity of this person? And so I usually have a really specific question that I'm trying to answer with my log and that helps me to not get it an overwhelming size. <laughs> so I made this new base that I'm excited about. It's um, very similar to the DNA matches base. And this one is called the fan club research log. And in genealogy, we have this principle called the fan principle and fan stands for friends, associates, and neighbors. Mm -hmm. And often we can't solve a case until we look at all of the friends and people that surrounded a certain ancestor or research subject. And after we look at that and we figure out who they live next to, who they used as witnesses on deeds and all that kind of thing, then we can start to see patterns about who they were probably related to or who they might have migrated with from one state to the next which is often when our ancestors get lost and we can't figure out where they came from. Mm -hmm. So one strategy that I've started using is keeping a table with all of the names of the people I encounter that are related to my ancestor. So here's my research log and I've kept track of the sources. So I found them on the 1830 census, a tax list, a, a few deeds. And on each of these records, there's like multiple people that I want to keep track of. So I give them an ID number in my fan club table 
and you can see they show up over here. Mm -hmm. I love how Airtable links those. And so I can just put in like, oh, this person was the creditor and this was the neighbor and this was the witness. And then I sort it by last name and first name so I can start to see patterns like this surname Arnett or Arnott maybe was spelled a little bit different, but it's probably the same people because you can see that they have the same first names, Andrew and sure. Jacob. So I'm starting to get an idea that, that he lived near this family. And maybe if I research this family, I'll find that he married into this family and that's his wife's surname. So it can really help organize these little clues that lead to the answer. Mm -hmm. So that's been my new favorite usage for Airtable because as you can see, there's a lot of people that are coming into contact with the research subject. Yeah, that's, that's really cool in that, again, I keep wanting to say detective, but it really <laughs> is. You have to consider sort of this extra bit of information that you could gather from, you know, related information that you're trying to get. So even if you're not necessarily convinced that, say, McKinney was, you know, in your family. You can use their association with your family to kind of get additional information about where they were going, where they went, how long they stayed at a certain place. So that's it's something I didn't even consider really in part of the research that you'd have to do. Yeah, you know, it's not one of the concepts that you start off doing when you do your family history research, mm -hmm. but as you get um, confronted with a brick wall problem in your family tree and you feel like you've come to the end of your line where you just can't push the pedigree back any further, this is a strategy that professional genealogists will use to help extend the pedigree, pedigree and figure out more details. You know, as you get further back in time, there are less paper records with our ancestors' names on them. But often those names are hidden on records that we wouldn't know to look for until we expand our focus out to the friends, associates, and neighbors. And so that's kind of what's happening here. Like if I went and started researching this John McKinney, maybe I would find that on his will, he actually mentions my research subject, but I wouldn't have known that because usually it would, you know, that record would only be indexed by the person's name. Like the John McKinney's name would be found in the, the will book index, not the name of all the other people that were mentioned in the will. Sure. It's also, I'm looking at all of the sources for the, for this information. And it's amazing to me that, you know, 1836 tax list, for instance. So, you know, that was quite some time ago. And, you know, the fact that you're able to glean so much information, I mean, look at all the linked records to this specific tax list. That's <laughs> incredible. You know, that's an interesting point. I wasn't sure how much data I wanted to get out of this. But when I really looked at the list, you'll be surprised. I'll show you what the actual handwriting looks like. But when you look at the, the way it's organized, it's by district. And so all these people were living in a certain part of the county of Tennessee in Hawkins County. And so it's alphabetized and it's like about four pages of people. And I just ultimately decided that I wanted all of their names because I didn't know which ones were his direct neighbors. So I just went for all of them. But you never know which, which name will end up standing out as being something that shows up in multiple records over, you know, several years. So I am very clearly not an expert in this at all. I could not read a single word on that page. Um, is, I this is a pretty poor it. image copy, actually. It would be easier to read this in person, for mm. sure. So if I were able to go to 
Um, Hawkins County, Tennessee. Actually, this, this would probably be located at the Tennessee State Archives. Then it would be easier to read. And it, it takes practice, but you know, you can zoom in and see a little better and start to get an idea of what these <laughs> letters are. See well, how it makes dis a District number 15, I can see, and like <laughs> name of person, which I got from context clues, right, but the actual names, I right. can't, can't do it. I mean, the numbers I get, 200, 300, and whatnot, but Luckily, it's been indexed by somebody who was trying to read these. Oh, wow. So they went through and, and that's how I found it because I was able to type the name into the database. Mm. And, but sometimes it's wrong. So you just look at it this and you compare it and you say, oh, yeah, that looks right. And other names like Nicola, really? Are you sure it's not Nicholas? Like, mm -hmm. I think this is probably Nicholas. It looks like a little S there. Yeah. So, but yeah, I love my job. It's fun to look at these old records and imagine these people who lived so long ago and they were real people who, who I kind of feel like their story deserves to be told. So I try to do my best to find all the records about their life and do accurate research. And often it does take a lot of time and research, but mm -hmm. ultimately I think it's rewarding, especially when I can cut down on some of the duplication of the data entry right. and start finding real clues to help the client or to help solve the case by finding all these little clues and organizing them in a way that helps me see the information. Sure. And then at the end of the day, when, when you've made the conclusions that you were asked to make, or you've, you've solved the, the question that you've been tasked to solve, I think it, it would probably come as a relief to, you know, your clients who not only get an answer, but you'll have all of this information neatly stored and very well organized for them if they wanted to look at, you know, your, your chain of logic of how you've come to that conclusion here you go. Here's, here is all of your research that has been, you know, categorized and it looks pretty and it's, you know, you've added citations and links directly to the resource and all of that. Yes. And there are great, there's just so many great capabilities within Airtable to be able to do that. And, but one of the things that I really need, I don't know if this is possible, but I need to be able to italicize things within my, uh, it's, it's kind of possible. So we'll, we'll, okay. we'll do it live. If you go to if you edit this field that you're in, because it's a long text field, or the, the, um, the field properties. Okay. Like customized. Edit yes. Field. Yeah. Customized yes, field type. Then enable rich text formatting. If okay. you exit out of that and, and do Got that it. switch. Yes. Okay. Oh. Now save. Okay. This is somewhat new of a feature. So now you'll see all of your links became clickable. Um, That's but amazing. if you open up any of those and you highlight some text now. Okay. So I need to highlight the, yes. yes. You it's just possible. made my day. You made my day. <laughs> This I mean, is that's, the one feature that I've needed. <laughs> it's, you can do it for long text fields, but not, you know, you can't do it with a date field or um, mm -hmm. a single line text field, but long text fields, um, you can do italicis and um, hallelujah and also bold and, you know, clickable links and all that kind of stuff. The reason this is important and it might seem silly, but when I'm copying and pasting a citation from Airtable to my report, um, Chicago manual style, you know, they recommend that you italicize publications. Sure. And so the website is a publication and then whatever books that I'm citing, those are supposed to be italicized. So it just saves me a step from having to redo the italicized text. Hooray. I completely understand. And I'm pretty sure that's, you know, one of the, 
you know, use cases they probably had in mind. Because a lot of people use Airtable to do research. And, you Mm -hmm. know, when you do research, you should be citing things. And, you know, there's, whether it's APA or Chicago or, or whomever, there's rules. And so one of them is italicis. This is really the great news. I've been teaching a lot of people about Airtable and that's been the one thing they're like, oh, but I can't make my citations perfect. So let's go back to my spreadsheet. <laughs> so great news. Wonderful. Thank you, Camille. No problem. <laughs> I spend so much time on Airtable. I've, I, I, I know what it does, <laughs> you know, all, of, all of the tricks, which I feel like I do. And then you know, every time I host an episode, someone shows me something that I didn't know. So... <laughs> It's a give and take. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much um, for showing um, all the iterations of this base. Um, this is on, or one of these are on the Airtable Universe, correct? Yes, I put them both on Airtable Universe. Oh, so great. if you want to try using the DNA research log that's been published, and then you can also try the fan club research log template if you want to. Keep track of all those people that come into contact with your ancestors. The reason why that's important to do is because it's harder to keep track of them in your family tree because they're not like your cousin or they're not your aunt. They're not in your family tree. They're just people who were living around your ancestor. So you got to put them somewhere. And I think an air table is a great place. And, And logically with the family tree, there's a set number of people per generation usually i mean yeah you have two parents and your parents have two parents and so on and so forth but you can have any number of neighbors or other associates so i imagine that would get very cluttered and the the whole purpose of having a a separate base for that for sure yes so you know you you've set them up um very well, where I think even if you didn't necessarily want to do genealogy research for yourself, you've organized them in a way where I think they're pretty adaptable for a bunch of different, um, you know, sociological research studies that you might do or anything that you need to keep track of who you've come into contact with when you've contacted them, you know, hats off to you for for great base design. (laughs) You know, it was kind of a a process. When I first started making this research log for DNA, I didn't have a correspondence log. And mm-hmm. one of the people that I shared it with, he was like more of an expert in databases. And he was like, you know, to make this more of a, a database you can work with, you really should separate out all the correspondence from the matches table and put it into its own table. Mm-hmm. And that's when a light bulb went off for me that, you know, the power of a database is really being able to sort and group information that relates to these people in so many different ways. So I feel like Airtable has really taught me a lot about how databases work. And, and as I've started using some other tools for organizing DNA matches and clustering like Gephi and visualizing things in network graphs, mm. I've really started to learn more about how databases work. And so it's been a, a very educational tool for me. I love it. And I'm really glad that it's user-friendly so that someone like me who's not, you know, super advanced technologically can figure it out and make it work. Mm -hmm. Well, you've done a great job because obviously as you were going through it, I was able to instantly understand what the purpose of each little piece was for. And you've explained it very well, the process that you do and, you know, how you go about making those conclusions. So I want to say thank you so much for sharing this with us. And we'll put a link to um, each of these bases on the universe in the description. So if anyone wants to use them for themselves, um, they'll be readily available. Great. Thank you so much. No problem.